Hey everyone, it's Patrick. I've got some exciting news. In this episode, you may hear some allusions to the fact that our iOS ITB app is not yet out, but actually that's not true. It is actually out now, finally released. So go to the App Store on iOS, type in Inside the Boards, download our app for exclusive and expanded shows, early access to content or podcasts that we're going to be releasing in the future, some meditations designed specifically for medical students with the hope that they'll be used during your dedicated USMLE prep time to help you stay a little bit healthier. And then, of course, high-yield samples from our All Audio QBank and the option to purchase a subscription. If you're a previous subscriber via Podbean, keep an eye on your email. We'll be sending you instructions on how to transfer your current subscription so that you can access the Audio QBank on the new iOS app. It is a beta version. It's not perfect, but I think it is perfect as a companion to help you study on the go while you're driving, working out, whatever you have to do in life. We're hoping to give you back some time through producing this Audio QBank. Thank you for being patient with me as we've gone through this journey together. I'm very excited about Inside the Boards. I'm very excited about helping you with your medical education. And hopefully, we're able to do at least something to make your lives a little bit better. So, thank you so much for listening. Go download our app. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome back, Boards Insiders. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. This is the Inside the Boards podcast. Today, it's part two of the interview with Dr. James McCormick of the BS Medicine podcast. Hosting this one is Dr. Chase DeMarco, who also runs our Medical Mnemonist podcast. That's like mnemonic, uh, spelled like mnemonic. So check out that channel. Our Audio QBank iOS app comes out any day now. For now, you can get the introductory pricing, though, by clicking the link in the show notes or going to insidetheboards.podbean.com. Step one is powered by Exam Circle, and the step two version is powered by Online MedEd. We're headed into the studio this week to record the questions professionally. Uh, and for now, the content is a mix of robot recorded and uh, human recorded voices. So before we get into today's episode, here's a brief example from our all audio QBank. Alexa, what can you teach me about biostats? A researcher designs a case control study in an attempt to determine the cause of an outbreak of hepatitis A. What form of measurement would be most appropriate to compare the two study groups? Is it A. Attributable risk B. Incidence C. Odds ratio Or is it answer choice D. Relative risk and the correct answer is C. Odds ratio. Case control studies are used to compare risk factors in people with and without a certain disease. 
always correlate odds ratios and case control studies. Odds ratios are able to define how much greater the odds of exposure is among those with and without the disease. And we want to thank AMSA for supporting the Inside the Boards podcast. So here is a little excerpt we did from an interview at the AMSA convention 2019, just last week. All right, welcome back, Boards Insiders. I am here with Fahim Bilal at the 2019 convention in Washington, D.C. for AMSA. And he is a second-year medical student at the Baylor College of Medicine. Anyway, thank you for being here, Fahim. Tell us what your highlight has been so far of the conference. So, it's my first uh, AMSA conference, and I was just amazed to see the number of people that attend and the number of resources and exhibitors that come out. I think for anybody who's going into medicine or is a pre-med and undergrad right now and he doesn't, they don't know what resources or tips or study materials that are out there that will help them in their pre-med track or medicine track, um, coming to AMSA is definitely an eye-opener. It helps okay. you form those connections. It helps you gauge kind of materials or online what, uh, what stuff will be, would be beneficial to your studying style and how you can succeed in whatever you want to do. All right. Awesome. So what has been the most awesome resource that you learned about that you didn't previously know about? So actually, uh, I was talking to Dustin. That's his name? Yeah. Yeah, Dustin yesterday. And he was telling me about these uh, audio podcasts. And that's something that I was actually... Dustin, are you talking about yes. our person? Yeah, y'all's podcast. Oh, Patrick? Patrick? Is, his, is that his name? Yes. Okay. So yeah, Patrick, uh, I was talking to Patrick yesterday and I was talking about how given the short amount of free time that you have as a medical student, you kind of want to make the most use of it. And I've noticed that during my day, uh, the most amount of time that goes, I don't want to say wasted, but unused or not, not productive is when I'm just doing simple chores or when I'm commuting and to make, use that more effectively, you kind of want to, you want to have a study material or form, like study method that lets you do whatever task that you're doing, but also passively just learn. I was actually looking for like podcasts or audio forms of uh, study material, and Patrick told me about the different podcasts out there, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a look. So I'm very excited about that, actually. Oh, that's awesome. We're so glad you were really excited. So you were saying how Inside the Board sounds like a great resource? Yes. Okay, and you plan to be using that because you really like integrating audio learning kind of stuff? Yeah, so it's more about just making sure that every every possible second of the day that I can make it more productive, mm-hmm. right? That I do that. So a lot of people have uh, what we call like Anki flashcards, right? So they're on the bus, they're doing Anki flashcards. I'm not a flashcard person myself, and I like listening to lectures and podcasts and stuff like that. So I've been actually looking for stuff to listen to while I'm on the shuttle going home, while I'm walking from one like clinical site to another. So that's the reason why this appealed so much to me, and I'm going to look into it, and hopefully like, it's something that I can use. Awesome. Okay, yeah, we really hope it's helpful. That's our mm-hmm. goal, to be able to let you live life and still get the work you need yeah. to get done. Done. All right, well, do you have any... We've been asking people, how do you study different? Oh, man. But do you have any weird study habits? There are two things about me that I feel like a lot of p- other people don't do. Is I'm a very much pen and paper kind of person. So the entire first one and a half years of uh, preclinicals at my med school, I would print out every single lecture. I probably killed the whole rainforest at this point. 
but I had to do it because I would scribble on the lecture slides, I would write notes, I would annotate, that's how I study. Okay. And the second weird thing about me is that I constantly need to be moving when I'm studying. So I, when I would be reviewing a lecture, I would grab the lecture slides, and because they're in paper, I could do it. And I would just pace my house. Like, I would go up and down floors from room to room, where, like, talking to myself yeah. and, like, reading through lectures. And that's what I do. That's how I study. So you stay, you, your body stays active, your yeah. mind stays a little yeah. more active. All right. I think that sounds like great study yeah. advice also for the listeners. So do you have any other parting words of wisdom or anything else you want to say? I guess medical school is, I guess, a perfect test of how well you're going to manage your time after medical school, right? So if you can figure out a way to balance work and life while in your medical school, you're going to be all the, so, all the much better for a while in residency because learning how to do it in residency will be brutal. Right. But if you can do if you learn how you can do it in medical school where the, when the stakes are a little bit lower, where you actually can't, where you have less responsibilities, obviously not taking care of patients in your first two years, you'll reap the rewards for years to come afterwards. So it's something more. that I'm still working on. I'm horrible at it. I wish I was better at it. And I'm very envious of the people that do do it very well. So I think I, it's something that I encourage myself to do, and I would encourage everybody else to do also. Awesome. I yeah. could not agree more. What yeah. residency are you thinking of doing? So I'm leaning towards EM, but uh, I've just started my clinical rotations. So I, I, I get more accustomed, or I guess I get more exposed to different uh, clinical rotations and different services. I'm keeping an open mind. Okay. And if I fall in love with something else that I want to spend, that I can envision myself uh, spending the rest of my life doing, then I'll probably go into that. You're fine with changing. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're listening to the Inside the Boards podcast. Let's get right in to the content. I'm wondering if maybe we can transition now into actual steps that students can follow. And mostly, we can reference a lot of this to a paper that you have online. So anyone in the audience can search for how to critically appraise an RCT in 10 minutes. And I found it very simple steps to follow and very useful, very condensed information. Can we go over some of the topics you cover there and sort of your step-by-step process? Yeah, so this is just something that we created for our students. And uh, as you mentioned, yeah, it's you can get it as a, a PDF version. And if you happen to have an iBook or, or a, an iPad, uh, you can get an iBook version of it. It's interactive and there's some, some audio associated with it and, and that sort of stuff. And really what it is, is after having done, after evidence appraising probably hundreds and thousands of RCTs, you get an appreciation for format about how we look at things. And so if you're going to do a proper, and I'm using in quotation marks, you know, a, a real deep dive evidence appraisal of an article, this is probably not, a lot of what, we're going to, what I'm going to talk about is, is appropriate, but, you know, you're going to get it, want to get into more detail of it. But if you really want to be able to look at an RCT, and, you know, I've sort of tentatively said it, it takes about 10 minutes. And if you gave me an RCT, I can get, I can extract the key pieces of information out of that, probably sometimes in under 10 minutes. But how do you do that? And so the whole concept of it is, let's assume it's a topic that you're interested. Let's assume that the the conclusion of the article, when you read it, might change your practice. Let's assume that the outcomes are important or all that sort of stuff. The whole point of doing evidence appraisal is to go, can I trust the results? That's why we look at these studies, because if we could just trust them, and it's not that everyone's being, you know, trying to be purposely deceptive or inappropriate or trying to fool us. But we have to go lots and lots of science and, and lots of studies, especially if there's only one, you, you can almost guarantee they're not going to be true. 
And so how do we at least start off by looking at that? And so what I do is I just, the whole concept is, is if, if we could tr trust the results, we just have to look at the abstract because it tells you the answer and that's all you need. But really what we, what we need and we work people through this is to go, there are some areas of bias that we look for. And so what I tell the students and, and family practitioners or who, whoever I'm talking to, this is, is probably you just need to search a few things within the PDF of the article. You know, you search for random to see if it, if it was a randomized controlled trial. You look to see if it was blinded. And I'm not going to go into the, what all these things mean because that would just take too long. But you look to see if there's allocation concealment and an intent to treat analysis and how many people uh, were lost to follow up. Because those are the key five different things that you look for. That, that help you judge a little bit about the quality of the study. There are many other things, but those are the key things that in the Cochrane people look for. And then you look also look for things like, uh, you know, who, who funded the study. And it's not so much that, you know, uh, drug company studies are bad and non-drug company studies are good. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. The higher quality trials are done by the drug industry because they have the time and energy and money to do that. Now, they may, the trials may answer the question that nobody cared about. That's a whole other topic, but that's the sort of thing. So then once you go through that evidence appraisal of, of the looking for things uh, from a bias perspective, and then you, that's a big part of it. And then what you do is you go to typically table one and look for the patient characteristics. So who was studied? And you just look at that table. So you get it sort of a in your own mind's eye. Who was studied? So that you know, with was it in kids or was it in adults? Was it in women? Was it in people with heart failure or not heart failure and that sort of stuff. And you look to make sure that there, there's not much differences between the two groups. And that's the main evidence appraisal part. And then the main part that we teach our students is how do you extract from usually the main patient outcome table, how do you extract the numbers that you need? And it really is the absolute numbers on in each arm of the trial. And, and then we spend time saying, Make sure you understand what a confidence interval means, and you're going to see confidence intervals. And what do they, what do they mean, and what do they don't mean? Because boy, confidence intervals are just. We have to write a paper on that because basically anything, time anything annoys me, I write a paper about it. And you know, the misinterpretation of confidence intervals is is even in high quality statistics books is at best challenging or weak. And so we explain what that means and what a confidence interval means, and then you do the same thing for harms where you get the harms that happen in both groups, make sure you're looking for all the harms that are important, make sure you know what harms were not even measured in their up. And once you, and then we get them to create a table and uh, we create a whole synopsis of that. And, uh, and then now that you have all of the numbers, you have an appreciation for the quality of the trial, then you have to, use, that's the best available evidence, at least if, let's assume there was only this one study. And then you apply it with using uh, clinical experience and expertise and patients' values and preferences. And so we get the students to do that a, a number of times. And once you've done it five, six, seven times, it's, it's a process. It's like, it's just like a, I, I would be surprised if someone said, okay, we're going to get you to suture this, this laceration. We're only going to show you once and you're only going to do it once. I mean, you don't get to be good at it if you only do it once. You got to do it many, many times and, and have people help you through that. And, and then in, if, in case people are interested at all, we do a, uh, we've, we've done this synopsis for literally hundreds of uh, cardiovascular trials. And it's on a, a site called mystudies.org. It's basically a one page synopsis of the top 300 or so cardiovascular trials that have been done in the last 30 or 40 years. And so 
people have made synopses of evidence. You just have to find the people, uh, find where they are, and uh, it depends very much about what specialty or what you what you see on a day to day basis. Okay, and these uh these outlines will all be in the show notes as well, with a link to how to critically appraise an RCT in ten minutes. Some may it seemed like step one was figure out your needs. Number two is check for bias. Number three, ignore most of the rest of the text. Number four is find out who was studied. Number five, what happened to them? And then six, do we care about these results? That's a much better synopsis than what I just gave. I think that's exactly no. what it says in your... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. No, yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's, you know, if, if you sometimes have to do more of a deep dive into the evidence. But if you can do that, you won't regularly get fooled. That's good. That's something that I think uh, I've had trouble with in the past too, is kind of, especially when it comes to the bias aspect, is finding out, was there bias here and I'm just not detecting it? How much does who funded it really matter? Some of those questions. Well, yeah, unfortunately, no one can answer that. Like, I, I can't tell you. I literally can't tell you. These are just things that we look at. And, and like, I don't know how many of those bias things that we just talked about have to be negative or, or wrong, if you will. Before I go, I can't trust the paper. Nobody can tell you that. That's a good point. I, I, the, the, what I can tell you is the the the, the it depends which which way you look at it. The less bias, the less problems, the more confidence I have in them. But even if the trial was absolutely perfectly done with not a hint of bias, if it was a study, I'm nervous as hell because it could be by chance alone. So if I only have one study. I mean, knowing the results of, you know, one study is like, uh, it's kind of like reading one page of War and Peace and going, I get the story. <laughs> it's a very small view at that point, but it's kind of hard to have more of these similar studies performed sometimes because you have a result, the drug company or whoever is like, I like that result. I'm just going to stick with it. Then who is going to finance a study to double check the results? Yeah, and so so that's so that's the prop that and and there is not necessarily an answer to that. But what's important for you as a clinician to know is it is one study. So you're right, and and uh, and then who should fund the next one? And you're right. If if I was a company, how about this? If you were a company and you had one study that showed your drug really worked well, you would do your best to never publish another study. And I'm exaggerating a bit, but not that much. Because nothing good can come out from doing another study, really, especially if you've shown fairly impressive results, which is why the FDA typically re uh, requires a couple of studies. Um, but that's that's usually just a couple of studies that either look at just symptoms or surrogate markers or things like that. They they very rarely uh, require a large randomized controlled trial, you know, looking at mortality and morbidity and that sort of stuff. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but the 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 evidence has been so questionable and so worrisome for type 2 diabetes about, I don't know, probably 9, 10, 11 years ago, the FDA mandated that uh, glucose-lowering studies, you had to do a non-inferiority trial of glucose-lowering drugs. Now, I don't know if you guys know what a non-inferiority trial is, but usually a non-inferiority trial is when you take two established therapies and you want to go, you want to make sure that one is not different than another. You want to see that they're non-inferior. The FDA required companies that made glucose-lowering agents to do non-inferiority trials against placebo, which means they they had they had to demonstrate hmm. that their drug did not make things worse than the placebo. 
I mean, that's un- no, they don't have to show you didn't have to show it was better. That's un- now sometimes they did show that it was better. But that's unprecedented in, in medicine. Okay. And it's because we had a whole bunch of examples of where these drugs, not only did they not improve outcomes, they worsened outcomes. So the FDA was just saying, look, you guys, you've got to at least show you're not harming people. Now, how sad an environment are we in that you have to do non-inferiority trials against placebo? And that's, so when you've heard all of the, there's probably like five or six trials in the last four or five years that have come out with type 2 diabetes drugs, they are all non-inferiority trials. Now, some of them showed superiority, which is great. Wow. But they are designed to be non-inferiority trials. That's kind of scary. It was even more scary before they did them. That I didn't realize either. Is that only for the uh, diabetes medicines or is that more broadly? Yeah, so there's a whole story around that one. So up until that point, you could get a drug on the market if it lowered a surrogate marker. So you didn't have to show that a drug or a treatment uh, reduced cardiovascular outcomes or changed death or anything. You just had to show it lowered glucose or glucose uh, or blood pressure or cholesterol. So and that, it was being that way for 40 years. And so there's been a lot of evidence. In fact, between in, in um, I can't remember the exact numbers, uh, somewhere between 2007 to 2015 or so, we had 20 large randomized controlled trials done for drugs that lower blood pressure or glucose or cholesterol. And these are large trials published in major journals. There were 20 in a row showing either no benefit or harm. Wow. It wasn't one that showed a benefit. It was consistently no benefit or harm. And so we know that doesn't mean that there aren't some agents that like lowering blood pressure, especially if the numbers are big or statins have do produce a reduction in cardiovascular disease. But many of these surrogate markers have not proven to be nearly as impressive as what we thought in the past. So it's why we need this healthy skepticism and, and, and the glucose is a brilliant example because up until three or four years ago, we literally were working on the evidence from a single study for type 2 diabetes, not type 1. That's a completely different really disease. And I'm not even sure type 2 diabetes is a disease. It really is just a risk factor. But, you know, unless you got the, you know, the person who's peeing all the time and thirsty all the time and, and, and all that, and their A1C is upwards of, you know, 11, 12, 13. That's a different story. But the vast majority of type 2 diabetics aren't like that. So the problems with the surrogate markers and the targets in a lot of the research. Yeah. So here's an interesting one. I bet you, you bet you didn't know there's never been a single study that looked at getting people to different cholesterol levels to see if it made a difference in outcome. That doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> After all, we learn about cholesterol and and heart disease and and thresholds. Yeah, there's never been a study that's looked at, at randomizing people to different levels of cholesterol to see if it makes any difference at all. Even though they keep lowering the threshold that they want or the the target amount for different medical therapies? Yeah, it's based on sort of a hope, if you will, and epidemiology stuff. There's no, there's just no, there's no studies. And I love that. That's, I love that. Now, it, it, it's kind of similar to, to the sort of the myths and beliefs like the, I don't know if you listen to on our podcast. I mean, one of the, one of the sort of myths that I always um, bring up that usually gets the, are you kidding me type of look when I say it is, you know, the, is the is the label that gets put on uh, antibiotic prescriptions? Do you know the the one main label that gets put on antibiotic prescriptions? Ooh, I can't think of it right now. No, T- take it till it's all gone. <laughs> that's a myth. It, there's not a shred of evidence that that's what you should do. 
even though the theory has always been that it's going to increase antibiotic resistance if you don't take enough, if you don't take all of it? Yeah. Yeah. So you know the story mm-hmm. and, and it's a great story and it's probably not true. Wow. Because so that's the argument. If you don't take it till it's all gone, you'll get resistance, mm-hmm. right? Well, but the opposite of that is the longer you're on, on an antibiotic, the greater chance of something becoming resistance. resistance. Huh. Yeah. And so, and the evidence again is, and this is not for, you know, obviously things like HIV, although that we don't use antivirals on antibiotics. And it's not for endocarditis or prostatitis, but for common respiratory tract infections or soft tissue infections or pyelonephritis or, you know, the common infections that we see, the evidence is overwhelming that we use, we should use much shorter courses of antibiotics. This pretty much every respiratory tract infection we've ever sh- had has been shown that five days is as good as 10. But even, even with that knowledge, it really should be individualized. In the beginning, we talked about individualizing therapy. And what I commonly tell patients who are getting antibiotics is the reason that you got 10 days of an antibiotic is because nine is stupid. <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah, that's a good way to think of it. <laughs> And, and, you know, eight is kind of stupid. Seven is not stupid. Six is stupid. Five is not stupid at all. Four is not, you know, that's kind of stupid. Three is okay. You know, and it's that type of thing. So what I typically say for most people, for most infections, and the evidence isn't overwhelming for this, but I think it's based on the best available evidence is that you take the antibiotic till you, till you're asymptomatic for two to three days and then you stop it. Huh. So the, so there's not really evidence for either argument at this point. But well, well, there's, there's no, no, there's overwhelming evidence okay. that like for 14 versus seven days of for pyelonephritis. Oh, yes. I, I have or heard. Or for skin versus five days or whatever. But the ca- the problem with that evidence is that's the average, right? Mm-hmm. So we have, we, we have on average that five days is as good as for someone as 10 days. So some people say, well, then you should just take five days. And that's a legitimate argument. But let's say they have taken it for four days and they're still not feeling very well. Maybe you should take it for a couple more days or maybe you should switch the antibiotic. This is a great example of we can know the best available evidence, but then we have to use common sense and what's happening to the patient in front of us. Let's say I had a study that said uh, 14 days, sorry, 10 days of an antibiotic was as good as 14 days. So then people said, well, then everyone should get 10 days. Well, no, because what if I gave the antibiotic to someone and and in two days, Let's say they within a day they're feeling better. Within three days, all their symptoms are gone. Why would you continue it in them? Because you the ten days was pulled out of your rear end anyway. As far as figuring out what the duration is, so you've got to use some common sense. And 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 just even given your reflex going, when I said you know that's a myth, I just that that's why. And like I say, I get in a lot of troubles with that one because that that label's been going on prescription bottles for. Thousands of years, sadly. <laughs> We've only had antibiotics for probably what now, maybe getting onwards of 80 or 90 years. Mm-hmm. And I can almost guarantee there was, I don't believe there was anybody who said, I don't think it was the evil drug company that said, you know what, let's make sure we make sure people take way more of this than they need. It was done with the best of interest. And just like the people who write diabetes guidelines or cholesterol guidelines, not all of them, some of them are kind of jerky, but most of them are trying to do a good job of treating patients. But what I can tell you in my experience with working with people who write guidelines, they don't do a good job of looking at the evidence. Do you know why? Because they're not trained to do it. Well, that definitely doesn't make me feel any better about all the facts that I had to memorize in med school. 
Yeah. So, so some of the facts, I mean, anatomical fact, you know, facts about anatomy, you know, um, I'm sure you're thrilled that you had to learn the Krebs cycle. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, so that sort of, so, and, and, and here's what we, what I can, here's, it's even more depressing. Some of what I'm saying is probably wrong. I don't know what part of it is though. What is it they say when you go into uh, what we teach you in med school will be half of it will be wrong in a few years. We just don't know what half yet. Yeah. And, and that's kind of a made up number two, mm-hmm. but it's, but it's to give you the context of the, that science changes. And so if, if in fact it's going to change, we think you guys should have some skills to be able to do that. And then, you know, don't even get me started on what we know about nutrition. I mean, it's just an evidence void. Oh, yeah. That could be a whole another show right there. <laughs> oh yeah. That, that's a whole, that, that's a, that's a PhD thesis. Yeah. Because there's only here, I bet you didn't know this fact. There have only ever been three large randomized controlled trials in nutrition that looked at important outcomes like heart attacks and strokes and so on. Everything else is either surrogate marker or uh, surrogate marker or a cohort trial. No, I had no idea. I'm still trying to figure out which resources are legitimate enough to use for nutrition advice to patients. So that's, that's been difficult so far. Yeah. So it, and that's why we did a, one of the the music videos, of, you know, the educational spoofs. We did, we did that on uh, Hotel California, the, the song Hotel California. And so we did a spoof where I tried as best as I could present the best available evidence for a whole bunch of stuff in nutrition and also try to show what do you, what, what do we mean by evidence in nutrition? And so if you, if you, you're interested in it, just go listen to seven minutes of Hotel California and it'll give you the evidence for what we have for a whole bunch of stuff around nutrition. It's a, it's a, it's a gong show. I, I remember. Just recently, in the most recent American Nutrition Guidelines, I don't think I'm paraphrasing much. They they hired a group to look at the evidence. The evidence said quite clearly there is no there is no amount of cholesterol that you should eat that's a that's that's an issue. And that was the evidence that they got. And the guidelines came out and said you should limit your cholesterol intake to this. Huh? Because people write guidelines. People who have beliefs and agendas and all that sort of stuff. So it's tricky. And guidelines don't need to be evidence-based as much as opinion-based? Well, again, all I can do is tell you about the evidence. If you look for the evidence, like in groups of people who've looked at guidelines around infectious diseases, uh, endocrinology, so leading diabetes, and uh, other cardiovascular trials, and of all of the recommendations that come out of these guidelines, only probably 10% of them are based on RCTs. 50% of the recommendations are opinion. So we know what, you know, opinion is, is tricky. Now, I'm not saying you can have RCTs for everything and you obviously have to have opinion, but what I'd rather have is give clinicians enough knowledge of the evidence and stuff so that they can have their own opinion because boy, you guys feel trapped with those guidelines. You feel guilty as hell if you don't follow them. Mm -hmm. And I think to some degree, you might have to worry about payments or reimbursements from insurance if you're not following certain guidelines. So it's, it can be difficult. Yeah. And people worried about getting sued, even though I am unaware, and it doesn't mean I've done a comprehensive search for it, but I've talked to a number of lawyers. I, I should say there was one case in the, in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and that, it was something to do with cancer screening. I think it was prostate cancer screening. But I am unaware of anybody who has ever been sued for not getting a person to a cholesterol level or a blood pressure or a glucose number. So it's not like there's a few of them. I'm unaware of any. Now, I, I would love it if some 
can email me and tell me, no, there's this one. If literally, if there have been almost none, why do people worry that they legally have to follow these guidelines? It's a good point. Good question. I'm hoping that's, that's one that'll get, uh, get answered pretty soon. So I won't need to worry about it later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, I mean, we, we do this, you know, lawyers, we, all, we get, we get the medical protection protective associations come in and the, you know, the lawyers tell us, no guy, you don't have to follow guidelines. That is not what you're judged on. I mean, it'd be, it's very hard to get sued. If you said, you know what? I, I, I talked to the patient about the benefits and the harms. Uh, I believe they understood it. They made a decision. I supported them. You're not going to get sued for that. But someone's going to come in and say, oh, no, that's the wrong way to do medicine. No, don't tell the patients anything. Just you tell them what to do. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. Many things to think about. Well, Dr. McCormick, I don't want to take up too much more of your time today. Would you have, I know we've covered a Bohemian Polypharmacy video, mystudies.org, the paper we covered there. All of this information will be in the show notes. Um, do you have any other resources that you would recommend to students? I know in a previous conversation you and I had, you recommended calling bullshit just as sort of a fun prelude to how easily it can, uh, uh, information can be skewed and how to look at it that way. Yeah, so that's not something I've done. That's just there's a course, I think, at the University of Washington. It's called Calling Bullshit. Ah, thank you. The only, you know, the some of the resources that we created, we just uh, we published a simplified lipid guideline, which is which uh, is available in the Canadian Family Physician, and it goes over. It, it, here's what it, we have: thresholds not for treatment. We have thresholds for discussion, which is a fundamental difference in in how you present a guideline. We just finished, uh, and by we, I mean I did not do the majority of the work by any stretch of the imagination. In these group that I work with did. We just published the the uh, guidelines for medical uh, cannab uh, cannabinoids. Uh, that's again in the Canadian Family Physician. We've got the CBD calculator for all of the evidence for how you make assessments of risks of cardiovascular disease. So that's at cbdcalculator.com. We've got a pain-calculator.com, which gives the evidence for things like neuropathic pain and the evidence for that. As you mentioned at the beginning, we've done a podcast every for the last 10 years. So we've got 400 episodes of Mike Allen, who's a great primary care family doc, and I chatting about things, you know, primary care. And I try to publish as much as I can. And uh, and I think we've done about, I've done about 10 or 12 or 13 of these music videos because they're kind of fun to do. And so just check out my YouTube channel under my name. Wow. Sounds great. That's, that's a lot of resources for the audience to check out and use for their future uh, clinical practice. So thank you so much, Dr. McCormick. My pleasure. It's a lot of fun. All right. Don't forget, we have the Study Smarter podcast, question dissections for the USMLE, Comlex, and Med School. We are currently running an internal medicine uh, mini Study Smarter series. And at the end of March, early April, we will be launching our USMLE Step 1 Study Smarter series to help you with your dedicated prep time. So don't miss out. It's High Yield Meted for free. Thank you for listening. And once more, thanks to the band Knights. That's Knights with two eyes and Sun Pedal Recordings for letting us use the song So Into You off Knight's newly released album, 
Hellebores Part 1. You can check them out wherever you stream music or click the link in the show notes to hear more on Spotify. Spotify.